Well, let's uh, pray to start the message this morning. Father, I just uh, thank you for your word. And like uh, Jeff said, it was written um, you know, thousands of years ago from the Old Testament and just a couple thousand years ago in the New Testament. But it's amazing how applicable it is to our lives to this day. As, as Solomon said, nothing's new under the sun. So the, the hearts of us are the same as they were back in Adam and Eve's day, where we need your word just to sustain us and to help us work through life because we just can't do it on our own. So I just, um, I'm grateful for your message and, and uh, your spirit's work in teaching us about how to raise our kids. And I just pray you take a crooked stick like me and uh, make a path straight. And um, may your spirit uh, speak uh, to the people today and just give me clarity of thought. Um, things are a little tougher right now because I don't feel the greatest, but just uh, may your spirit speak through that despite the fogginess and uh, sustain my voice for, for the hour, Lord. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're on uh, part five of our parenting series. And uh, today's uh, message still is the, is the final cleanup uh, for the, the second pillar of, of uh, parenting, which is uh, godly discipline. So the first pillar was sacrificial love. We did that in one week, and this is uh, week four in discipline. Obviously, that's a big topic. So uh, this is a uh, cleanup hitting today. Um, and I just titled this uh, Final Instructions and Warnings <laughs> for us, okay? So we're going to just look at the final instructions of, and things to consider in the category of parenting. So this instruction is, uh, is going to be to both parents, of course, but we will do a small section specifically to fathers and a small section specifically to mothers. So let's start with uh, a couple things, and we've highlighted this stuff uh, throughout the messages already, um, but I'd like to uh, sort of re reiterate in a deeper, uh, more profound way some of the things we've spoken about. The first thing that we need to consider in our tidy up and our final instructions for both parents is that we need to expect first-time obedience from our kids. That's a rhetorical question. I've asked it before, and you all agreed, but does God expect first-time obedience from us? And the answer is, of course, yes. So then should we not, as parents, expect first-time obedience from our kids, whether they're six or like a year and a half old or 17, uh, doesn't matter, we would, we would like that. We, we expect that. God expects that of, us, of, our, of our children as well. And it's interesting, in the scriptures, I can only find one command to children. One command. There's, we have thousands of commands and, and, and ways of do, living life uh, when it comes to adults, but for kids, there's only one. Uh, the fifth commandment says to kids, honor your father and mother. Of the Ten Commandments, the fifth one says that. Interesting, in Colossians 3.20, it says this, Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. So it's not just a case of being pleasing to mom and dad, it's pleasing to God when you as kids listen to your parents. First time. Ephesians 6.1 says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. So again, both passages talk about obedience being something that God is God's design, something He wants. Now you think about this. In other commands, 
like, like not to lie. How many times are we allowed to lie before officially it becomes a sin? <laughs> so you can lie five times and then God says, okay, the sixth one, that's really a lie. So now you have to be corrected. How about stealing? How many times can you steal before it's a, a, a break against God's command? How about gossip? You know, it talks about gossip in the Bible being a sin. How many times can you gossip or slander somebody before it actually becomes a sin? First time. Children, obey your parents first time. Therefore, as a, par as a parent, we need to expect first time obedience because that's what God would desire. And if other commands don't get two, three, four chances, neither should our children. Here's a practical test for you as a parent of whether you've received first time obedience or not. And Evie and I have talked about this, and, and she's um, talked, she does a good job of explaining this for herself. But one is of the level of frustration you're facing. If you're extremely frustrated in that time, then likely that you haven't had first time obedience, because if, if you just responded the first time, you wouldn't be frustrated and feel yourself building up with anxiety over the, their, their behavior. But probably the most practical test would be your tone of voice. A great indicator is if you're yelling. If you're a yelling parent, clearly you've not followed through the first time. Unless, of course, they're in danger. You'll yell if they're in danger or you have to overcome like uh, white noise or something like that. But if it's in a setting like this and you're finding yourself yelling at your kids, that means that they've, they've likely disobeyed you more than once. It's at that point in the middle of yelling that you finally jump in and decide to step in and try to correct the behavior. And often the sad thing is that the blame gets thrown to the children at that point, right? The parent might come in like this, why aren't you listening? Did you not hear me the first time? You know, and so on and so forth. So the, the, the child gets the focus of being the one who's to blame for this reason. But the answer, of course, is they did hear you. They did hear you. But if, we're, if we are parents that don't practice first-time obedience and responding to it, the, the child thinks there's no urgency to obedience because mom and dad probably aren't going to follow through anyway so there's no point in me trying to listen the first time I'll, I'll play my cards and I'll take my chances so we've trained them to not want to listen the first time so it's interesting that parents get frustrated with their kids with the why don't you listen to me mentality but from God's perspective it's not their fault it's actually ours as parents because remember a child starts in a place of foolishness we start from a place of wisdom. So, and remember from the, uh, one of the sermons earlier, parents are given the task by God to remove foolishness. Parents are given that task. So, and God says, I'm not supernaturally going to come from heaven and correct your children. I put you in power to do this. So again, um, it's when we come in at our kids with that mentality, like, why aren't you listening? Don't you hear me? God's saying, listen, parents, it's your responsibility. Don't put the blame on your kids. They're foolish, and it's your job to get it out of them. This is why 1 Samuel chapter 2, which we did last week, might be a really good reminder and a good passage for you guys to get, um, not just you guys, but me and my wife as well, get our heads around. Because remember, 1 Samuel chapter 2, God said to Eli, You've honored your sons above me by not disciplining them. I mean, if you put yourself in a heavenly perspective and think about that, man, to not discipline my kids first time is to disobey God and to dishonor him as a parent. 
I mean, that's, for me, strong, strong motivation. So I'm going to give you two practical tips to ensure, and I call it training for first-time obedience. First-time obedience doesn't come easy for you as a parent to accomplish, and the kids don't want to respond to it either. So here's two practical tips to help you through this. Uh, don't ask questions as a form of warning. Don't ask questions as a form of warning. Um, I, 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 I mean, we, we, we're guilty of this too, because you just, again, this is, this is the ideal for parenting. <laughs> we're not always going to get there, but a lot of parents ask things like this when the kids are disobeying. Do you want a spanking? That's like, has your child ever said yes to you? Uh, do you want to go to your room? If you don't stop, do you want the car taken away? Well, that's probably for a 17-year-old. <laughs> or, if, or, you know, if you don't stop doing that, do you think, you, yeah, do you want your car taken away or the cell phone? Well, then stop doing that. I mean, again, we don't expect absolutely the response is going to be yes from our children, do we? So if you ask them, though, if they want to get punished, what you do is you train them to wait for the warning before they consider obeying you. You train them to go... I know what happens. Warnings come first, and then obedience can come later. So I'll just play my cards right, and I'll, and I'll be able to get away with this. So asking questions doesn't change their willingness to obey you. It delays it. So here's how it should look. This is what it should look like with a, with a, with a kid. You, before the, the event of the, uh, before the, the, the task that you want them to do, or the chore you want them to do, or the way they're to play occurs, you, you speak to them and tell them the instruction up front. You say, this is how daddy and mommy want you to play, or this is what dad and mom want you to do, right? At that point, you leave them, and you allow them to have a test. God did that with the manna in Israel. Here's how you eat manna, here's how you eat quail. Okay, I'll leave you alone now, let's see how it goes the rest of the day. And they had a chance to, a test, time to test and obey. You get down a level. If they disobey you, you walk in the room and discipline them. And then when you reconcile with them, you say, here's why, and make sure they understood the instruction up front. You'll never yell, and you will um, never ask them questions. <laughs> okay? So you don't want to train your child to delay listening to you, because they'll learn to look for warnings, because that's the way mom and dad operate. We'll give you lots of warnings first. And again, um, that's not what God desires for us. Second tip, make sure you have their direct attention Um, with teenagers, uh, you know, like their mind will wander and, you know, they might want to listen. They're thinking about school, hockey, like, you know, dance class, makeup, what they look like, whatever. Uh, with children, um, you know, they're, they're, they're distracted by books and transformers and all sorts of different things. Make sure you have a direct eye contact. Get down on their level and make sure you know they can hear you. It's important to do this when, it gives you, when you give instruction. It accomplishes three things. First, You'll never discipline unfairly because you know they've heard you. So if you get down to the level and you're face to face and they're with you, you know they've heard you. So if you go to discipline, you know it's because of disobedience, not because of un, um, unknowingness of whether they, the instruction has been passed on or not. Second, it sees that you're in control. So when you're calm and you're just speaking in a gentle voice, they can see that you're under control. And so the construction's coming from a place of gentleness and not rage. So it's very important to see that this is just the way mom and dad want you to operate. Third, 
um, lack of eye contact is a form of rebellion for children. When they won't look at you, that's because they don't want to look at you. I mean, I know this even with my wife and I, if we've ever had a fight, when we correct each other and we try to reconcile, it's hard to look at your wife in the eyes or your husband in your eyes, isn't it? When they tell you something's wrong, you just want to stare at the floor like this. And when they're done, you just kind of go like this. Right? You don't even like receiving correction from your, from your husband and wife when you know they're right, when they're, they're calling you out for sin. Why in the heck do you think your kids are going to want to? So the kids look down at you, do down at you. They don't want, they're, like, they're basically saying this, I don't want to listen to you. Take a hike, mom and dad. Right? Eye contact, make them look at you, and they can see again that you're in control. All right? So those are two practical tips in, the, in terms of training for first-time obedience. Third, uh, sorry, second now, second area we want to consider in our final instructions is never discipline and anger. We're going to spend the majority of the, today on this topic. In fact, the bulk of the sermon will be this. One can be angry internally because of the sin. That's okay. You can be angry inside and you can be frustrated inside. But when you go to discipline, don't display that in your body language and through your tone of voice and your, and your, and your aggression. While this is a warning for both parents, it's mostly a warning for dads. And so we're going to speak to the fathers primarily here for the next 10 minutes or so. Please, as a church, uh, turn to two places. Um, look up Ephesians 6.4 and, Col- and Colossians 3.21. I'll give you a minute here. Uh, Ephesians 6.4 and Colossians 3.21. When I hear the last page stop turning, I will start speaking. <laughs> yeah, there's always a comedian, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, there's too many, or they think they're comedians. <laughs> Ephesians six four. Okay, somebody read Ephesians six four to me uh, to the whole church, please. Okay, fathers do not provoke their children into anger. Okay, and Colossians 3.21. Someone read that out, please. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Okay, so they won't lose heart. So don't bring up, don't provoke or exasperate your children so A, they don't get angry, and B, they don't lose heart. Exasperate and provoke are virtually interchangeable words, but I want to show you the definition of exasperate um, from uh, Colossians uh, using 2 Corinthians 9.2. And those of you who like uh, Greek word studies and like to know where you get words from, I did a little bit of work, and I want you to read 2 Corinthians 9, 1 and 2 with me on the PowerPoint. I, I, really don't underst- I really don't need to write to you, Paul says, about this ministry of giving for the believers in Jerusalem. For I know how eager you are to help, 
and I have been boasting to the churches in Macedonia that you and Greece were ready to send an offering a year ago. In fact, it was your enthusiasm that stirred up many of the Macedonians um, believer, believers to begin giving. The word provoke is to stir up or exasperate is to stir up. In this context, it's in a positive way. The Corinthian church is, um, it was their enthusiasm to want to give that stirred other churches on to want to give. So he's saying here, you guys provoked or exasperated many of the Macedonian believers to begin giving. Well, that's a really cool thing. And that, it's, in other words, you're giving them encouragement and zeal towards being this kind of way in a positive way. Well, in the context here, in Ephesians and Colossians, it's in the negative context. You actually stir up and, and then make your children enthusiastic or have, give them zeal towards the opposite, becoming angry and losing heart. Okay? And it's a, it's a, it's a, it says fathers. It doesn't say mama <laughs> right there, right? He's speaking to the dads and saying, dads, this is your tendency to do this in your children. So how, how do fathers tend to do this? Um, this is not an exhaustive list. Uh, so if you have other examples in, in, the, in the dialogue, I, I welcome them. But I just thought of a few. Um, you know, being a dad, it's pretty easy to come up with some ideas of the way we do this. <laughs> but I want to talk about this. And, and Jeff mentioned this uh, earlier about shaming. Uh, dads often can use constant shame-based language. Shame-based language. This is characterized, I call it by the you always language, or you never language. Uh, let me see if I can shed, shed some light on this. You're always messy. You always cause trouble. You're always the instigator in the fights in the family. You're always rude. You're always inconsiderate of other people's feelings, especially your sisters or your brothers. How about this? How about the you never language? You never think about other people before you act. You never think about others like before you speak. How come you're never like your brother or sister? Because they don't do that. You see, shame, doesn't, shame language doesn't distinguish between a child's behavior and the value of the child. You see that? Shame language doesn't distinguish between the child's behavior and the value, intrinsic value that God gave them as a human being. See, shame language defines a child by their failures, not by the value as a person. So what it should look like is something like this. You first value the child. You distinguish between the value and the behavior. What they did was wrong and it wasn't right, but they are themselves are not wrong as human beings in terms of who they are as people. The child's value is found in God. Because he created that life. He created them in the image of God. And he created them for a purpose. So in the cross, in Romans 5, says that he died while we were enemies, while we were ungodly. He died for us while we were enemies to the cross. He died for, his value for us is so great that he loved us so much that he died while we were sinners. While our behavior was wrong. But our value as a human being is worth going to the cross for. So we have to distinguish in our parenting between um, the children's behavior and the children's self-worth because that's what Jesus does in terms of us as adults as well. And the truth is, they are not always like that. My wife and I, were really, we used to, and we used to fight, 
we'd, she'd always, or we'd say things like, you always say this and you always do that. And her and I had to stop. And we, and we, as soon as I'd say that, I'd stop and I'd say, I didn't mean that. I meant to say most of the time or this time you. And Denise and I hardly ever fight anymore because the you always language is a recipe for fighting in marriage. Because you feel locked in to that, all, who you are and it's not who you are. Children aren't always the instigators of a fight every single time. They're not always in the cause of trouble. They're not always acting before they don't think about other people. They might be in that instance, but not, that, not as a way of locking them in. So, this constant spirit of criticism and shaming will cause a child to lose heart, to de just be deflated emotionally, and become angry and feel unworthy. Another way dads do this is through uh, using aggressive tone of voice and derogatory statements. They use strong tone of voice and derogatory statements. These are like the I told you so statement, or I told you, like, but in an aggressive way. Like, I told you to do this, and I told you to do that. Get in the car, I told you to get in the car, I told you to clean up the floor. Like it comes in like with this domineering um, voice. What's the matter with you? Can't you do anything right? Are you deaf? Are you stupid? Did you not see that blah, 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 blah? Your sister was playing with this or your brother was playing with that? Or get over here right now. You're impossible. <laughs> so is this microphone. Hold on a second. Here. Yeah, Kevin, you fix that for me. It'd be great. Yeah. Those are those kind of those kind of comments. Again, when we speak to like to them in that, in that way all the time. Again, this, this domineering, using your, your your sort of like aggression as a as a man in derogatory derogatory statements, just makes the child feel deflated and lose heart. One of one killer one is a parent, a dad who when he shows favoritism among siblings, showing favoritism. You know, there's not, a, there's not a coincidence in our culture we have this saying. He's the golden child of the family. Or he's the black sheep of the family. Where in the world does that come from? Because we ultimately know that between our children, often we can show favoritism, and we have the golden child and the black sheep. The results in that are devastating. I don't have to even tell you what that, I mean, it's, it's obvious. Genesis chapter 25, those of you who are... In the, in the chronological reading, you'll be coming to, you should have just passed that. Rebecca and Isaac, okay? Rebecca and Isaac have two boys, Esau and Jacob. Isaac loves Esau. Jacob is loved by Rachel. Or sorry, Rebecca. Rebecca. Guess what happens in the family when one, loves, one parent loves one more than the other? It split up their home. Jacob had to leave home and walk away from, from his family, and his brother wanted to kill him. Like he literally wanted to murder him. So it, it causes, so I mean, in that situation, it caused disunity in the home by leaving and potential murder case on, on, the, on the run. When the child, um, you know, likely with young children especially, they're not going to leave home, and there's, no, there's not likely going to be murder within the family at a young age. But they get this, this message that mom and dad, or dad, I should say in this context, 
loves, clearly loves so-and-so more than me, and it's obvious, and it just totally makes them lose heart and deflates them, and will turn them to bitterness and anger. Another thing dads can do is set up unreasonable goals and make unreasonable demands. Unreasonable goals and unreasonable demands. This is the father that sets up tasks for the child beyond their capabilities of their maturity levels. Or their, or their, uh, and and they, they, their, their maturity can't handle the potential for success in these areas. It's a failure to provide age-appropriate instruction and lacks the consideration for the maturity. And the result then is the kid gets overwhelmed because it can't actually fulfill what dad wants. And, it usually used to, and usually when, dad, when the child fails, then dad meets them with criticism. So it gives them a list of chores or a list of tasks, and then the child goes to do them, but they're beyond him or her, and then he comes in and criticizes because he didn't do it right. Okay? Um, this is, uh, again, can set up children for failure. Again, they, they, lose, they lose heart and become angry because they can't do anything right in dad's eyes. And I was recently with a family, and none, nobody in this church, so don't start uh, thinking I'm thinking about anybody here. I was uh, with a family recently. The kid was around uh, 10 years old. And I'm not even kidding. Within five minutes, the dad gave him three tasks to do, three chores to do. They're all um, outside. They're all like they were, they were living on like a farm acreage type situation. And uh, he gave him three like major tasks to do with the animals and the feeding and stuff, all within five minutes. And he hadn't even got the first one done. The other two came in, and I could just see the kid going, "Well, like you know, like stop, like stop with it. I can't get everything done." And then, when, and then after the third one, when the dad saw, he's like, well, why didn't you do the first one already? Well, of course you couldn't do the first one because you, you've been just bombarding him with like lists of chores and chores and chores. And likely, I wasn't there for the final straw, but likely that kid um, didn't accomplish all three really well because he was trying to just get everything dad wanted done quickly. And even if he did, I'm sure it was met with a spirit of criticism. Another way a father can uh, exasperate or provoke a child um, is the use of unnecessary physical force to ensure compliance. Unnecessary physical force. Dad knows he's stronger, so what he does is he overwhelms the child because he knows he's stronger. This is the classic ear pull from the room. Get over here now, grab your ear, pull you into the room, to, and then sit you on the couch. This is the double hand, this is the double arm grab around the biceps and then pick them up and slam them down on the couch. Or this is when they're wrestling or something's going on and they come in and like they, they tackle the, the kid, but not to the ground, but like, you know, like hug them and just pull them away. These are unnecessary forces. And dad thinks that he's taught the child a lesson because they've listened. <laughs> this is absolute garbage. They listen because we force them to listen, because we've used our strength to do so. They've not listened out of free will, and they've not listened out of respect or love for the Father. And I'll tell you a story, and I won't use names. Um, this is powerful for me, and it was the, my first wake-up call to parenting. I was with a family, and they had a daughter, and the daughter didn't listen to either parents. The daughter of Bob was around 10 years old. The daughter didn't listen to mom or dad equally, but more so mom. And I was in the family, 
and in the kitchen, and uh, the wife was telling me and Janice her frustrations with her, with her why her child wouldn't listen. And again, this person's not in this church. Um, and uh, the dad says, well, I know what to do to make them listen. They always listen to me. She says, just go in there and grab them by the arm and pull them along and sit them down. They'll listen. And so I, I thought, oh, that's right. This is before I had children. So I go to Dan. I go to Dan Jensen, and I sit down with him. This is before I have no kids in my life. Jackson's not born. And I told Dan the story. I said, is that how you parent kids? And he says, he says the fact that he had to use force shows that he's already lost. And, I, and, he, and Dan walked me through why. Because here's the thing. The child doesn't respect dad, doesn't love dad, doesn't want to obey dad out of, out of his free will. He's, that child, is, that girl was forced to listen. And so the dad thinks because he got the girl to respond and the mom can't, that he actually succeeded. The truth is, there's this disrespect for both parents. And you know what the tragedy is? This girl today is in full rebellion against mom and dad equally. This child today is in full rebellion against mom and dad today. So dad's use of unnecessary force, which forced the child to listen, did not work out. The child is estranged from their parents. And the child's now around 15 or 16, uh, probably 16, 17 now. Okay? So it's really, really interesting. Like Dan said to me, Andrew, as soon as a father does that, they've already lost the relationship with the child. And finally, to, 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 to dads, um, you talked about unnecessary physical force, but this is not in the area of spanking or something. This is just like, you know, the ear pull, the arm grab. Disciplining in unrestrained anger. So not, not internal frustration like with, with sin, but this is like hot-headedness, uh, body language, like, like full aggression. Maybe you're doing the right thing in terms of following through with a punishment from God's perspective, but you're doing it in the wrong way. Nowhere in the scripture permits dads to discipline children while their tempers are high. Nowhere. I know why we're tempted to, because we think that by showing aggression and being like the big gorilla in the cage, we're going to teach them to fear. And if we teach them to fear, they'll eventually obey. But here's the problem. The thinking is wrong. Look at James chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. I put on the PowerPoint so you don't have to flip there. Read this with me. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. And I'm going to talk about ways it won't produce righteousness in your kid. Well, there's, there's two things. First of all, if we want our children to grow up to have a healthy fear of God, and a healthy fear is defined in this way, obedience that comes out of respect and love, God, if we want them to respond out of healthy fear, then disciplining and rage won't make them fear God, it'll make them fear you. See that? A child doesn't fear God when they sin, when you're enraged. They fear you. They feel the wrath of dad. They don't feel the wrath of God. They feel the wrath of dad. So when we discipline out of control, the child's mind is thinking, this is a personal vendetta between me and dad. This isn't, this isn't about me sinning against God in any way. So this becomes a correction. It's not a correction of sin. It's basically, it's, 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 it's way more than that in a child's life. Okay, so you won't produce righteousness in your kid 
when you discipline from a place of anger. You will make them angry and make them lose heart. Secondly, it will damage your own testimony. So it won't produce righteousness in yourself. Galatians 5.22 gives us the fruits of the Spirit. They're love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are the fruits of the Spirit of a Christian father. You know what's interesting? The list before the fruits of the Spirit, he gives a list of fruits for the unrighteous person. One of them is fits of rage. One of the categories is fits of rage. If we discipline in rage and anger, we possess qualities that non-Christians possess, and we reflect that to our children. It's a, if this is the pattern of, of us as a man, it tanks our testimony to our children. Because here's why. We're freaking out in the home, always in rage, always in anger. But then we want to go to church on Sunday. And we want our kids to go to youth group on Friday. And we want our kids to engage with spiritual conversation in the home. We want them to memorize the Ten Commandments, and so on and so forth. And the child's already turned away from God because they see the hypocrisy from dead. The child's motto is, if this is what it is to be a Christian and to have a relationship with God, I don't want God at all. Remember, dads, God never inflicted punishment on any of the Israelites in a mean-spirited way. Never once. So neither do we. He never did it. Yes, he disciplined them, but he wasn't. He was angry at their sin, but he never was a was a freak show in the discipline. One final consideration: if your goal is to ever serve in Genesis House as a leader, you will be disqualified if you are not in control in this area. In 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 4, elders must be of good temperament, gentle, peaceable, and keep his children under control with dignity. A qualification for leadership in Genesis House, and when we get to the stage when we grow and mature more, when we have elders come forth for, for leadership here, you will be asked to make a, a, a judgment call in the men's lives in this church, and one of the categories is this. Do they, do they have, like, are they peaceable and gentle and keep their children under control of dignity? If, if the dads that come forth in this church aren't, you say no to qualifications for leadership in this church. Most elder boards are made up with men who are good at business, who are, have successful businesses and have lots of money and have clout in society. In true biblical eldership, one of the categories is that you have to be good with your kids. <laughs> God's different than the world. Mom's turn. You don't get off the hook. Ca- word of caution to moms. Men's, da- dad's tendency is to be too hard. Mom, your tendency is to be too soft. Go to Proverbs 13.24 with me, please. As a church. When I hear the iPad stop turning, we'll uh, read it together. <laughs> Let's have a, a woman read this. Do you have it, Laura? No? Oh, okay. I'm sorry. We'll give it. Uh, sorry. 
Uh, Callie, do you have it? Proverbs 13.24? Or Evie does? Okay, Evie. He that spareth his rod hateth his son, but he that loveth him chasteth him often. Does it, does it say often? <laughs> Always. Are you reading like Shakespearean Bible there or something? <laughs> Thou hast lost hitherto your mother? <laughs> Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Okay, diligence is the key word. Diligence. As a mom, you tend to be too soft. And in the category um, that you tend to be too soft often is in the area of diligence. And there's a reason for that. It's not entirely your fault. See, God created you to be a helpmate to the husband and created you to be a nurturer, right? So your tendency is you want to remove foolishness from your children through hugs and love and nurture, okay? According to Proverbs 13.24, the rod removes foolishness, not hugs, okay? And likely, I'm going to describe two ways in which you won't be diligent, okay? First one is consistency. Um, you are really busy as moms. I know it. Um, you, you have a lot of tasks to do, a lot of responsibilities, and a lot of you are list-orientated. You don't want interruptions, and you feel like if I, if I have to discipline diligently and consistently, I'm never going to get anything done. I'm not going to get anything done. So you'll just let it go this, quote-unquote, one time. <laughs> but, and especially in the beginning stages, this is tough because when they're small, you feel like all you're doing is taking care of the disciplined needs of your children and nothing's getting done around the house. And you feel like you're constantly correcting, so you play a game in your head. Because I'm constantly correcting, I, I feel like I'm overwhelming my child and I'm being too hard on them. <laughs> First Samuel chapter two: If you do not discipline your child the first time, you honor God above, or you honor your children above your your, your uh, before, above God. That's the sign you tab uh, talking there. <laughs> it's not very clear. <laughs> okay. So consistency: your task oriented, list oriented, and you just think I'll just let it go because I've just got too many things to do and I'm disciplining too often. That's a lie, though. That's a lie. Second area that you will struggle in is severity of discipline. Most of you, but maybe not all, but most of you as women will simply lack the physical strength past the age of three or four to actually put any pain inflicted into your kids. And, this is a, I'm and I've witnessed this like over and over. Moms, you think you've done a good job on the severity because your kids are crying. I've seen children cry from you guys' spanks that don't have a tear in their eyes. They don't have a tear in their eyes. And if they do, it's because, not because of pain, it's because you interrupted their playtime and you got in their way. <laughs> They're not crying because of legitimate pain. They're crying because of a little bit of the relational hurt and the interruption of the activity. And, and, as, and, I, and I know it because, like, we, like, as men, we are literally two to three times stronger than you. Literally two to three times stronger than you. I see it in the gym. I train men and women. Like, no offense, but we crush you in power. Mo and again, this is a, no joke. Can any of you women open a pickle jar 
when it's first bought off the store without asking your husband? Yeah, with your head. <laughs> she proved my point perfectly. So you're gonna tear your kid upside down and bang him on the counter? <laughs> right. Your little hands are like like Nerf guns, like they're little flippers. They don't work. You're gonna have to come up with severity. There, you don't have the power and the strength to, to impact past the age of three or four. Okay. So the problem is because you're not severe, parents don't, the children don't take you seriously, and they'll play their, they'll take their cards, they'll play their cards, they'll take their chances. Men, it's the opposite. You got to calm down. But women, you have to uh, come up with other strategies on how to uh, inflict severity. And this is a very important thing for women because you're a nurturer. You don't want to hurt your kids. I get it. Neither, neither do we as dads. I've virtually had like tears in my eyes or I've been just so deflated in my, in my emotions when I've had to come forth with my kids. So I get it. But you have to read Proverbs 23, 13 to 14. Someone please read Proverbs 23, 13 to 14. Um, Callie, can you read it to us? Good reminder for you moms. Proverbs 23, 13 and 14. You hear that? You'll strike him. He won't die. She won't die. You're not going to kill your children. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Inflict pain. If you do it, you'll have to do it less frequently if it means something to the child. Okay? And God knows moms wrestle with this issue. Um, turn with me to Proverbs 10.1. God knows you moms wrestle here. Proverbs 10.1. A wise man... Sorry, a wise son makes the father glad, but a foolish son is grief to his mother. A foolish son is grief to his mother. Go to 29.15. 29.15. The rod and reproof gives wisdom, but a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. Remember Ephesians and Colossians? It's an instruction to fathers. There's no instruction in Proverbs about the, the father being shamed and having grief. It's to the moms. Why? Because again, I think God knows that it's the tendency of the moms to not discipline. So when they're in public situations and different things, they get embarrassed because they can't get the kids to listen to them. And so moms make excuses because they know it's their job to discipline and everyone else knows it as well. So she passes on the blame to the kids that make them not look bad. I was in the bank. True story. I love it, I love it when... Things happen in my life that are, that are my own stories because they mean more. Um, I'm in the bank at uh, Royal Bank about a year ago. Mom in line with me, two boys about uh, seven and eight, or maybe a little younger, probably five and six, running around the bank like hooligans. And everyone in line, and, you know, banks are quiet, right? And, um, and uh, it, it's hooligans, it, they're just absolute disasters. And mom turns around, who's at the front counter, and says publicly, she says, Stop it, boys, you're embarrassing yourself. And I almost said this, and I'm like, note to self, like, shut their mouth. I almost said, no, they're embarrassing you. <laughs> I almost said it, and I was like, the Spirit checked me. Thank goodness for the Holy Spirit, because I would have been like, because Proverbs says, correct a scoffer, you'll get a mitt full back. So Proverbs tells you, if you correct a scoffer, you're going to get it back. So I'm like, if I correct her, she's a, I'll be correcting a scoffer. And that's that. She's embarrassing her. Everyone knows it. The parent 
what everyone in line is going this mom do something mom do something they're not thinking kids stop it <laughs> okay we laugh but we, we all know as moms what it's like uh, can I can I give you like a word of encouragement in this church I know what it's like when Dan and I don't know if this is how you feel around me I don't know if this is how you feel and if you do I apologize but when Dan first started teaching me a lot of these things I was nervous around Dan because I knew he had his, his parents, were, his children were fantastic with him. And here was me, this brand new parent that was like just learning the ropes, okay? And I always used to think like when I wasn't doing things, like, am I, like I just was always nervous around him because I didn't know if I was parenting correctly. And now I'm more comfortable, but it's been five, six years in. Please don't be worried about, around, worried about, around me with your kids or even in the church setting. Just follow through and discipline and do things the way God wants. Because we all want you to. And it's for your own benefit with your children. But I want to give you one final caution and one word of encouragement. And I talked about this earlier. Um, but one final caution. Don't pull out the you wait till your dad gets home card. Don't pull out the wait till your dad gets home card. I'm going to tell you why. It's gonna, you're forsaking your role as a mom. And I'm going to give you two problem, two things you're going to create in your child if you do that. One, if your dad, if husband is just learning and doesn't have become a sacrificial loving parent, you will set up your child to not um, to hate dad and not like dad. Because if he's not self-sacrificial, what happens is he's already losing something with his relationship with his child. So if he goes and disciplines all the time, dad becomes the bad guy. Now this is negated if dad's the, the sacrificial. If you play the wait till your dad comes home card and he's very sacrificial, all you'll do is make your dad have more respect and you will never get it yourself. So dad's either the bad guy, but if he's sacrificial, you still don't gain the respect because you put all the onus on dad. So what happens is your plan will backfire in your future relationship with your child. You actually won't be closer to them because of that tactic. You'll lose a relationship with them. Very interesting. But here's the word of encouragement to you moms. And this is real. And if you if you tune me out completely, tune me in now. Tune me in now. At the annual Western Conference at the Entheos Center at Brad Creek last week, I was there on Wednesday. The uh, the bishop made us get into tables of about six. And there's about a hundred of us in the room, and we were asked to sp- share our experiences about how we all came into ministry, because we didn't know each other right very well. Some of us do, some of us don't. We were asked, tell us how you came to Christ and how, how you became a pastor in, a, in, a, in this church. I was floored with the response, what I learned from that thing. And uh, there was about three major pieces, and I'll share one, because Jeff mentioned it. One of them was that children, teenagers, were not, or young people were not given opportunity to serve in church. And, and what happened, when he mentioned that, one of the things why these men were in ministry was because Somebody took an interest in them at a young age and, and asked them to serve in capacities. And then after they saw that they had these wonderful potentials for pastoralship, they then mentored them and continued to spur them on. Allowed them to make, make mistakes, but mentored them. So everybody their story was someone had invested in them. And that's my story. I mean, I had, um, I, I mean, the, the most important men in my life that gave me a chance uh, were George Budd. And then it moved to Lauren Schultz. And then it moved to Dan Jensen. I'm here because someone took an interest in me. Now I was older, 
But again, to, to young people, this was amazing. So when Jeff said, um, people walk away from the Christian faith because kids aren't given an opportunity to serve, I get that. But here's the crazy thing. I would never have guessed this. We would go around the rooms, and the, one of the number one things was the role of the mother in the man's life. Man after man would say, my mom used to pray with me. My mom used to read scripture to me. My mom gave me a prophetic word. My mom used to sing to me. There was not a single person in that room that said my dad was the influence for becoming a pastor. Can you believe that? Like, listen, moms, like you have an incredible opportunity with your boys if you want them, or your girls, in terms of giving them a Christian faith. And who knows, with the men, you might spur them on to, to male leadership in the church. I would never have guessed that sitting in that room. So moms, please obey the Lord in the way you're to, um, to uh, raise your children because you have no idea the impact. And that's crazy because here I am as the pastor of this church. Janice could be the ones that influence my... According to those statistics in that room, Janice is the primary influencer for them in terms of ministry if they want to go that way, if I go by statistics. <laughs> all right, I've probably said enough. Yeah. I want to go through these quick. These are all based on Scripture. You've seen me give the, the passages... I want to just give you two or three things, uh, words of wisdom. I've asked God to take out anything that I think was, you know, not from his scripture. He hasn't convicted me that I shouldn't say these things, so I'm going to say them. I think these are practical steps that aren't in the Bible that I want you to consider, though, as part of your, of your children's raising. We'll go through them quick. Provide frequent amounts of physical affection and verbal affirmation outside of discipline times. Provide frequent amounts of physical affection and verbal affirmation outside of discipline times. This might seem like a no-brainer, but think back in your own life. How much physical affection did your dad or mom give you outside of performance? So when you did something nice, like you drew something nice, or you sang something well, or you played something well, or built something well, did you get any praise outside of those moments? Secondly, um, did, yeah, well, and did they ever touch you um, in, in a physical way outside of discipline? <laughs> like just natural, like just always. And just walk up to you while you're in the chair, just give you a hug out of the blue for no reason. It's not because you did something well. You have to give lots of affirmation and physical touch outside of correction and outside of performance-based issues. They have to know they're valued for who they are, not just when they do things well or not well. I mean, those of you who are, don't put your hand up, but those of you who are raised in quote-unquote Christian homes, how much did you receive outside of when you played the piano well? Outside of when you built the garage well? Outside of when you did something? I bet you it's not that much. I bet you it's not that much. But that, what that does is it values the child relationally outside of performance and outside of correction so that they know that you mean something to them. That's extremely important. Extremely important. You don't want their only touch to be when they're always in pain or when they've done something bad. Okay? Another thing to consider is don't discipline to please somebody else, only God. When you please someone to discipline, when you, when you discipline your kids to please someone else, you make them fear man. And let me help you with this. This, uh, this is my biggest struggle in my own life with my kids. When your kid does something or doesn't or does, 
should say something he doesn't or does something wrong, you want to meet the approval of the people in the room when you think they think you should do something about it. But here's the problem. You can't, that if it's an area of preferences, of the, of the neighbor's preference, your grandparents' preferences, don't discipline your kids. It only is, do you have to discipline only when God deems it as a necessary discipline action. I'll give you another story. There's somebody in my neighborhood that my kids play with. They have a, 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 um, a child that they really, really protect. And like in terms of like, a, it's like a glass bubble child. My boys, as you know, are nothing but nothing like a glass bubble. They're like, actually like, they'll break the glass bubble. So the issue is when I play, when they play together, I can tell that dad wants me to constantly correct my children because he wants me to do this and wants me to do that and wants me to do this because the, they're not playing the way they're raising their child. My boys are not sinning. I have to be willing to take the disapproval of the father because I'm, because, but my temptation is to always want to, when, when, when the father yells out to my boys, don't do that, I want to say, don't do that, but I, I have to, that's fearing man. That's not fearing God. They're not doing anything wrong. And if you guys are honest with yourself, when you're in a situation like the church and your kids are doing something wrong, you might think, you might want to discipline because you fear man beside you. You think, so-and-so thinks I should do something. If it's sin, do it. If it's not, don't. That's a really tough one to work through in your head. If you haven't experienced it yet, you will. And you'll remember today. <laughs> okay, and the last one to finish the sermon. Uh, and this is easy and fast because we're doing it. This is next week, part A of next week's sermon. Make sure there's a, the child knows there's a place to start over relationally. After discipline and correction, you go in, you hug them, you tell them you love them. You go in and you start relationally. You say, and I love Janice's line. She started using with my boys, and I stole it. She goes, "It's all finished. It's all done. It's all better. <laughs> it's good, isn't it? It's all done. We're past that sin. It's all finished. It's all done. It's all better." And next week's sermon will be pillar three, um, and it'll be called um, uh, reconciliation. So, pillar one, um, it's all sacrificial love. Pillar two, completed today, discipline. And pillar three next week will be, um, well, man, I'm losing my mind. Reconciliation. Reconciliation. And, we're going to, and in that, we're going to talk about shepherding the heart of a child. And this will we'll get into the teenage years and everything too. We're going to talk about uh, reconciliation and the heart of a child, how to raise them up in a Christian home. Yeah, great. Well, that's it. I'm um, looking forward to your comments and questions.